You are listening to the Maranatha Teachings Podcast, a ministry of Maranatha Church. Maranatha Church is a house church in coastal Virginia with members that span over four generations. Our Bible time together is both instructional and conversational. I'm the pastor and teacher, Nicholas Larum. Welcome to the Dialogue. We're in Acts chapter 2, but I want to go back to the music and some of the things we sang tonight. So, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Of course, you know, we've inherited the Greek tradition. So for us, it is Christ the Savior is born. The expectation was for Mashiach, the Messiah. Yeah. Right? So Messiah is born. Christ is born. I can't tell you how many Christians or how many non-Christians are out there who think that Jesus' parents were Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. You know, it's not... What? Okay, it's a joke. It's a joke. But people think that Christ is like his last name. It's not. It's his title. This has relevance to where we are in Acts chapter 2, because we're going to look at Peter's preaching on Pentecost. Where we landed last we met was on this final of 221 that Peter says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Remember last time we met, we were talking about the prophecy of Pentecost and Peter's citation of the prophet Joel and the significance of that and the rarity of that as a direct event. In other words, Joel is only mentioned by name in the book of Joel and in the book of Acts in this particular chapter. And this is the most direct citation of Joel. There are allusions to it elsewhere in the New Testament, but that's the most direct citation. So it's pretty significant that that's where he landed, and that's why we went over it last week. So he finishes the citation, like this is the last of the citation, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he goes into his preaching, and recorded in, in verses 22 through the first part of 39, Acts 22 through 39a. And then he finishes the main portion of his sermon, if you will, with everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Okay? That's the bread of his preach sandwich. Is Joel, well, he's preaching on Joel 2.32. And he cites Joel and... He reads that first part of of that verse in Joel, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he goes into an exposition of that in verses 22 through 39a, and then he finishes the sermon with the latter part of Joel 2.32, which is, um, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So it's, uh, I think the term's like a midrash, you know, a commentary on Scripture. This is very Hebraic, very Jewish. He lands on one place, he expounds, and then he finishes up with the verse he'd been expounding on. So he cited Joel, he, he comes into a section of Joel, this 2.32, and in Acts 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you see the correlation in our Bibles, in the English Bible, Joel 2.32, that's one part of the verse. Well, Peter stops right there. He, he, he comes to the first part of that, that verse, that, that paragraph, if you will, and he stops. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he preaches. He goes 
over some very significant current events and some significant scripture, and then he, he encapsulates his preaching with this last part of the verse, and Joel it is, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. Now where is he preaching from? Mount Zion. He's, he's, he's in the temple courts, so he's in Jerusalem on Mount Zion preaching. Joel prophesied that, well, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and you see in the English text how that's all caps. And remember we talked about that most English translators and versions help us understand that when they put the, the word Lord in all caps, they're signaling to us that in the original Hebrew, it is the, that holy name of God, that Yahweh name, that Y-H-W-H, the tetragrammaton, you know, the four-letter name. <laughs> the name that, that pious and Orthodox Jews won't speak out loud, that when they see it in Scripture, they'll say Adonai. They won't say Yahweh. But he, he has no issue with that. Uh, he's, he's speaking, and as Luke writes it, he records this, this holy name, holy covenant name of God, he records it with the Greek kurios, Lord. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's making a correlation. Luke's making a correlation. Peter's making a correlation that whoever calls on, this is the, uh, the God that we worship, Yahweh God is going to be saved. That's the correlation that Peter is drawing and that Luke is intentionally drawing and tying these two together under, obviously, the leading of the Holy Spirit, right? And then in verse 39, Peter finishes that main meat of the message that Luke records, because Luke, we'll see, says that he says a lot of other things. But this is what the Holy Spirit uh, inspired Luke to encapsulate in, in this book of Acts. Verse 39, For the promise is for you and for your children, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And there's Joel. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So I just want you to see that textually. That's what Peter's doing. That's what Luke is doing. He is capturing this he is expounding on this prophecy of Joel about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so, let's just get into it. Acts, chapter, 22, uh, chapter 2, verse 22. He finishes off with Joel, and, and then he begins to preach. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So obviously he's just talking to the religious leaders. No, I turned it off because I'm preaching now. Um, obviously he's, <laughs> he's just talking to the religious leaders, right? I mean... No, he's talking to all of us. Yeah, everybody there. He's talking to everybody there. Yeah. I mean, it's... He's talking it, to us, too. He's talking to us, too. It's festival season. Well, look at that. Now we're putting ourselves right in the story. We've placed ourselves right in the historical event. But think about... And you don't have much experience with this, I know. But just think about 
how altar calls or altar calls that you've seen or how preaching ministry happens in today's age. We have, a, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying they're invalid. I'm just simply saying contrast what Peter does on the day of Pentecost with what sections and sectors of the body of Christ have gone all in on today. We have a whole class of church that are called seeker-sensitive churches where we endeavor to provide as much of a worldly window entertainment dressing on the ultimate endpoint of the gospel in the hopes of attracting a large crowd to have the opportunity to get to the point of sharing the fact and truth that there's a Savior and at whatever point in time the evangelistic message does come out and an invitation is asked, there's a familiar phrase that says, with all eyes closed and every head bowed. If you'd like someone to pray, raise your hand. And then later, well, if you've raised your hand, please come to the altar. So that maybe there is a, a moment of public exposure and conviction. But generally speaking, we default in the realm of not making people uncomfortable, of leaving people, matter of fact, we cater to their comfort zone, their music comfort zone, their coffee comfort zone, and their TED Talk comfort zone. So we have a whole class of church that does that. We have another class of church that defaults on, if you're here, you should know what's going on. And so our incense waving and our clothing and the order of our service and the call and response between the ministers and the congregation, if you're here, you should get that. And, and if you don't get that, we have a class just for you. It's called catechism. You can go there, you can get confirmed, and you can go through this liturgy where we, by motion and tradition, join the story and join together and not entertainment, but in worshiping God. Those are two extremes. A liturgical expression of the faith and people who are in the faith who are working toward making things comfortable for people who might be interested in the gospel. Okay? That's a, that's a wide berth, right? So take those two and just, you know, Peter's... And we can't even just call it street preaching because he's in the temple and these are, these are God worshipers. This is a crowd who's made sacrifice to be Torah observant to show up at the Pentecost festival and worship Yahweh. And Peter is saying, hey, this Jesus you all are aware of, this Jesus who's from Nazareth, this man who you know that did all these things because God was working through him, Signs and wonders, which he did in the middle of you. Nothing's hidden. It all happened. You crucified him. You crucified him. You delivered him up. You crucified him. And you killed him by the hands of lawless men. How's that for a gospel message? That's a bit of a contrast, isn't it? He must have touched your heart, sir, because yeah. 3,000 men got saved during me. He doesn't leave it there. Amen. He doesn't leave it there. He doesn't, he doesn't leave it there at accusation or confrontation. He goes right into triumph. God raised him up. That man you sent 
to the gallows. That man who died the most humiliating death available under state-sponsored terrorism possible, he suffered, and you saw it. Well, God didn't leave him there. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Right. So he quotes David and he says, no, see, David in the Psalms said that Messiah wasn't going to be staying in the grave. And he anticipates the interpretive complaint. Well, wait a minute. You're saying that's about Jesus of Nazareth, but David wrote that. David wrote that. You can't, how can you say that's about Jesus of Nazareth, who, you know, we saw die on the cross when David wrote that. He kind of anticipates that argument. argument. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. <laughs> now this is, I'm going to turn it off again, Eddie. This is Peter preaching. Now he doesn't say this, and I don't know that he was thinking this, but i got to be thinking this because he lost a foot race to John to that tomb. And guess what wasn't in that tomb? Jesus wasn't in that tomb. He knows it. He's an eyewitness. He's not only an eyewitness of the empty tomb, he's an eyewitness of the risen Christ. So I think it's, I, you know, I don't know if it's tongue-in-cheek or ironic or anything, but i got to think, hey, look, <laughs> if you want to, we can all go right now to David's tomb. And he's there, okay? This is not about David. And so he says, I, I can tell you with confidence about the, the patriarch David. He's dead and buried. <laughs> you know, he's as confident, if not more so, of the fact that Jesus is not in that grave because he's been there. He's more confident that he's not in that grave because he's been with Jesus for 40 days. He's confident Jesus is not in that grave because he watched him rise to heaven, and he's full of the Holy Spirit because he knows Jesus made good on his promise to pour out the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. So I think that's pretty swagger, right? Hey, <laughs> this is Peter, same guy who, like, you know, days before was behind closed doors, locked away for fear of the Jews. He's standing in front of all of them and accusing them of murder, murder. <laughs> unjust murder. And, and then says, hey, look, you know, I can tell you, David's there. Verse 30. And I like this because in verse 29, he calls David a patriarch. And then in verse 30, he calls him a prophet. And before that, what did he call him? He just called him David. <laughs> Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, the Davidic covenant. Remember when David wanted to build uh, a temple, God said, ah, you don't get to do that, but I'll tell you what, I'll bring a king who will sit in, in, on your throne forever. Well, David knows men die, so there's only one way you get a forever king. 
Verse 31, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. David got it. David got it that Messiah would have to come, that Messiah would have to die, and that Messiah would have to be raised. And he, so he prophesied. That psalm is a prophecy that that soul was not left in the underworld, was not left in Sheol or Hades, was loosed from the pangs of death, which was the great hope of all the Jews, that they would be loosed from the pangs of death, that there would be a resurrection of the just. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What else does that tell David? David's a man of war. He's walked through, through slaughter fields. He knows what happens to a dead body. David was a shepherd. He knows what happens to dead things. What do they do? They, they, they rot. They rot. So if the body's not going to rot, what does that mean? It's not going to be in the grave long. It's not going to be one of these things where, you know, two generations later, someone walks out of some cave and says, Oh, I'm the Messiah. <laughs> no, 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 no. His flesh didn't see corruption. Okay? This Jesus God raised up of that, we are all witnesses. Who's he standing with? He's standing with the eleven. We read that earlier in the chapter. Then Peter, standing up with the eleven, said, These men are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it's only the ninth hour of the day. But this is that which the prophet Joel spoke. And then he cites the prophecy of Joel. And then he begins to... So he's preaching. This Jesus God raised up of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Who's poured it out? Who's poured out the Holy Spirit? Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. Jesus poured. He received it from the Father and He poured it out. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I think this is rich. On the day of Pentecost, that Peter cites this scripture. Remember, he starts off with that those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That those who call upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. That's the start. That's the you know that's where he breaks off from citing the scripture and he's preaching. And in the middle of this preaching, he says, David himself said, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's rich. That is very rich. And it's timely. You know, it's the Christmas season. Isn't that the same scripture that he was to the Pharisees? Ha! Let's read the 110th. At least part of the 110th. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Now, I'm going to pause again. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Before he ascended, he said, All authority 
in heaven and earth is given to him. He had authority. But in the Feast of Tabernacles, before the crucifixion, he said, anyone who's thirst, come to me. And out of this, because the Scripture, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's, that's not out of your belly. That's out of his belly. Out of his belly flows the living water from which you get to live and never die and never thirst. He says that in John 7. And John puts a parenthetical and says, This he spoke about the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay? Now, it may be, oh, water. It may be that Jesus, you know, got caught up in the shuck in a cloud, and two seconds later, he was glorified. And by glorified, you know, glorify me with the glory I had before the world began. So, in the incarnation, which we celebrate in the Christmas season, Jesus being born in a manger as a baby, we celebrate that He laid down willfully attributes of divinity. He willfully laid down omnipresence. He became localized. He laid, laid down omnipotence. He ate. He got tired. Remember he took naps in the boat while everyone else thought they were going to die? He's a peaceful guy. It's just a storm. What are you worried about? But he got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. Okay? So he wasn't all powerful. He laid down the attribute of omniscience, all-knowing. The times and the seasons, only the Father knows, he said. This is before glorification. But his prayer was, Glorify me with the glory I had before the world began. And John's testimony is the Holy Spirit wasn't poured out from heaven until Jesus was glorified. Now, that could have happened right after He ascended and filled all things. Or it could have taken the ten earth calendar days between the ascension and the day of Pentecost. Either way, once He's glorified, the Holy Spirit comes out. He's glorified. It's the day of Pentecost. Look at the 110th Psalm. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. And then it says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your, of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. It's just this exaltation of, He's on the throne. He's on the throne. This is the scripture that Peter's citing. That David knows he's not talking about himself because David himself testified that the Lord said to his Lord. But you're right. Where'd that come from? The 110th Psalm is Messianic. We know this. Uh, the, the fourth verse, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is quoted in the book of Hebrews. So the Psalm is about Messiah. And Psalm 110.1 was the basis of Jesus' Messiah question. This is, this is the question that Jesus laid before his contemporaries. His contemporaries that called him an illegitimate child. His contemporaries that called him a bastard. His contemporaries who called him Ben Yosef, the son of Joseph. Okay? 
He addresses them in Matthew 22, verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? This is why it ties into Christmas. Jesus being born. Whose son is he? Let me ask you a question. Whose son is he? Let me give you a fun project. Just look this up in all the three different Gospels. They each have a different nuance, which I think is interesting. But we'll just stay here in Matthew. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Which I think this is rich because this is Matthew. I don't know. I, I mean, I like to write. And so sometimes you see, you see inside jokes that maybe aren't funny. But how does Matthew start his Gospel? Matthew starts his Gospel with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how he opens his gospel. This is a real critical, crucial point in the history that Matthew's telling, and Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he says, let me ask you a question. Now this is a man writing about his Lord who opens his writing about his Lord with the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, records out of Jesus' mouth asking his contemporaries, let me ask you, the Messiah, whose son is he? And their response is, well, he's the son of David. He's the son of David. I can't help but see Matthew smile. <laughs> Wait till they get to this line. Wait till they get to this line, right? He's the son of David. He said to them, well, then how is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. <laughs> his answers, his question answers are, are, that's a little much to deal with, see. You see where Peter's going? I think it's rich that Peter cites this. Because Matthew 22 is not that far removed calendrically in the calendar time frame of these events he just reminded everybody about. You know, right before you all got really, really, really fraught with anger and jealousy and crucified this righteous man that God sent, he asked you a question. He asked, Who's, whose son is Messiah? And here is Peter reminding them, hey look, David didn't write about not being left in Sheol about himself because he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, whose son is he? If he's not David's son and David's seeing him as Lord in the present tense, well, then whose son is he? Well, they don't want to answer that. The implication's too much. Remember last time, he said at point blank, they picked up rocks to stone him, but it wasn't his time yet. You're upset because I said, I'm the son of God. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Messiah. Remember how he started off with, he left off in mid-verse with Joel. Anyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, Lord, will be saved. And then he goes all the way into Psalm 110 and says, David said in the Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then, he's, and then he just brings it all the way home. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, for certain, that God has made this Jesus of Nazareth, the one you thought was just a man, the one you thought was just a preacher out of Galilee, that man is Lord. And he is Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, I imagine that this they would be those who responded positively. Obviously not everybody got born again that day. But there had to have been those who the light bulb went on. Oh my Literally, God, we put him on a cross. Where are we gonna what are we going to do? Yeah. And, and, this, and, and, and when they, they come to the realization, oh my God, what are we going to do? Yeah, think about, think about this <laughs> just for a second. Not that they're thinking about it, maybe, but I'm thinking about it right now. From the Torah, what is the cost for murdering a human? What's forfeit? Your life. Your life. Your life is forfeit. But what's the cost for killing a deity? What's the cost for crucifying God? Who gets you out of that jam? There is no city of refuge for that. What are we going to do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he comes right back in to that final phrase in Joel. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. So, so what I hear you doing here is you're helping us to understand why... His message was so compelling, and why so many got saved? Because this was a this was a this was a jackhammer message, yeah. really, that just let them know they were checkmated. They didn't, yeah, there's no way out. What do we do with this? Yeah, you either just reject God altogether, or you get on your knees. So it makes sense that they were all kind of cut to the heart, and, yeah. and they 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 in mass. Yeah, this this was a this was a serious thing in, in their heart. I mean, they—they yeah. they, no, were—they were—they were facing. This is good because I've never really understood. Like, oh, the Holy Spirit just moved, and there were three thousand got saved. It was a beautiful thing, and really, there was a there was a you know, the Holy Spirit comes with conviction, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Yeah. Of course, He's going to work through the words. Works through the word, and it's a very challenging word. It's a point blank so, challenging so. word. It's like here, here, look at your theology. Look at look at look at our theology. Look at our scriptures. Look what it says. Look what you did. Look where we are. So this is a great model for a salvation message. I think is what you were kind of alluding to. Just, so if you really want to see people get saved, do it like Peter did. Because I'm, because the Holy Spirit is going to testify. I, yeah, I'm, I'm saying there's a great contrast. You know, there is a great contrast. Now Peter wasn't um, offering coffee. Yeah, there's there's not exactly. There's not a one size fits all. We see in scripture, you know, all, all kinds of means of evangelism, but here on this day, this is a pretty straightforward uh challenging message. Verse 39 again, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And you see verse 40, 
And with many other words, he bore witness. He didn't, he didn't bore the witnesses. Okay? He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, again... So the reverse of the yeah. So, so the way that the narrative is given to us is that you get to the crescendo of the message and there's there's this great response. But that crescendo of the message is is the part of the message that God wanted to be preserved for posterity for us to read. The other parts of the message were important for that day. But these parts of the message were important forever. And that's why it says, with, it's, like, it's like John saying, you know, look, the whole if, if we wrote down everything Jesus did, the whole world couldn't contain the books, right? Hyperbole. Right? There's just, but these are written so that you might know that he's the Son of God. If you, would you, so I, 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 I shared the ones, there's a purpose to it, right? So there's a purpose to why the portion of Peter's sermon that we have was the portion that was recorded. So it is not a waste of time to, to go back and forth. Look into the Old Testament. Look into what's being cited to understand that theology and where these people were mentally to understand what God is saying to us and, and, and what these people are doing. So it says, With many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Remember how Joel had said that you know, there'll, be people, there'll be people who escape? <laughs> so... Here he is, he's saying, hey, here's your time to escape. So those who received his word were baptized. Craig S. Keener makes the point that being baptized in the name of Jesus is not this personal thing. It's not, oh, I, I confess that baptism in the book of Acts, I think he says, is always in the passive. It's something that somebody receives. Something, something that somebody does over you, not that something you do yourself. That this being... And, and so this baptism, they, they baptized them in the name of Jesus the Messiah. That's the name of the Lord they had to call upon to be saved. It's a recognition of the Godhead. It's a recognition of who Jesus is and what the Father's done and that the Holy Spirit has come. So that is Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost